from the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Jason Siegel. You probably know him as Marshall Erickson on the CBS sitcom, How I Met Your Mother. Now Jason's starring in his own series on AMC called Dispatches from Elsewhere. He plays a guy named Peter. I know the cycle of being an actor and I've seen it around me and I know the ups and downs. And I know that there are several times over these 20 years when it could have been the end for me. But I always knew in the back of my mind that if I could write something good enough that I could keep acting. Jason gives me the backstory behind his show's unique season finale, how he finds meaning in the art he creates, and getting his start on the 1999 series Freaks and Geeks. Let's get to it. Jason, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you doing? How how has this pandemic affected you? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's it's been really strange for everybody, obviously, but I'm I'm doing fine. I live in a small country town, a couple hours north of Los Angeles, so we're a little bit uh, geographically isolated here, but, you know, you still start to feel like the last person on earth, I think, after a while, right? But, you know, you try to stay engaged. And I've been writing a lot, which has been a nice side effect, but it's hard to know how to how to handle everything because I think our attention spans have gotten so short culturally that everyone's ready to be done. But uh, it's not really up to us, is it? No, it's not. And, like, just when you start to get used to it, then the, like, emotions start to ebb and flow again of, like, oh, my God, wait, we're not over this. We're still in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that one of the biggest challenges for me is being alone with your own inner voice for this long is, uh, man, we're trying to make friends over here, but it's not its not easy every day. It, inner me is like the worst roommate of all time. <laughs> I want to divorce myself, Jason. I can't take it. I get it. Yeah, it's a lot. So tell me how it how it has been to write during this time and what do you find yourself sort of inspired to write about? Is it about what's going on or more escapist kind of writing? Well, I, I think very much like dispatches, not to segue into dispatches is not my intent, but um, I think there are ways to explore the way we are feeling culturally through art that aren't so specifically on the nose, but that capture a theme, an idea that I tend to, you know, you take this leap of faith as an artist, which used to be an embarrassing word for me to use. I've slowly started owning the idea of it, but that um, what you feel about a subject may be relevant to people who might see or hear or uh, take in what you make. And so I guess I'm just trying to pay attention to how I'm feeling and and explore those ideas and, and hope that it might be meaningful to somebody else. Well, let's talk about Dispatches. I mean, this series was inspired by the 2013 documentary, The Institute, which looks at the Jejun Institute, which had this elaborate sort of art project slash immersive alternate reality experience that happened in San Francisco. So talk to me about what led you to sort of do a dramatized version of all that. Yeah, well, I hadn't written anything at the time since the Muppet movie. And I I was trying to figure out what to write about next. And, you know, weirdly, the Muppet movie was like highly personal to me. And 
I think the closest I have felt to that was when I wrote Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which was also highly personal to me. And I was going through this period where I was trying to figure out what to write about and realized I hadn't done a real check-in as to where I was at in a long time. You know, I was on a TV show that went for nine years and I was making a movie each hiatus. A lot, a lot of those movies I wrote. And so I was a little bit on autopilot, to be totally honest. Like, you know, I didn't really need to check in. And all of a sudden I had this blank canvas in front of me where I could kind of do whatever I wanted, which it had been a really long time uh, since I'd had that feeling. I was doing a movie called End of the Tour where I was playing David Foster Wallace. And so a lot of that was seeping into me, you know, like these explorations of existential crisis and what's the point of all of it. It was really what I was thinking about. And I saw this documentary, which was so fascinating to me and felt when I saw it like the exact flip side of Fight Club, that we all have this feeling. I think I think it's a very universal feeling that there should be more, that this promise of what life was going to be like, you know, you check off all the boxes and then you don't feel the way you want to feel. And the Fight Club exploration of that feeling is, well, then let's tear it all down. And this other, not just the documentary, but the real experience that uh, a man named Jeff Hall created took the opposite tact, which was art as an act of defiance. Let's try making the world the way that we want it to feel. And uh, yeah, I I just felt like this is it. This is what I want to write about because it is sort of what I believe. I think think if you make art, it's sort of the the driving force behind it is I'm going to try to make this, I'm going to try to make this a little bit more magical. Uh, and that's sort of where it started. And then it was a really complicated road. Spencer McCall made the documentary. I got in touch with him and said, I think I know how to adapt this. And he said, I'll put you in touch with the creator. He wouldn't even really tell me his name at first, uh, but just be ready. It's it's not going to be easy. And I pitched this idea to Jeff and he said, interesting, not yet, and hung up on me. And uh, I was like shocked, man. And about three months later, I got an email with an address and a time in San Francisco. And I drove up the coast and I arrived and it was just like how we depict in the show. There was an envelope waiting for me um, that said uh, another time and another address for the next day. And I showed up and I was put through this crazy induction. And the whole time I felt like the best version of myself as I was going through it. I felt like how I felt when I was 10 years old and thought everything was possible. I felt a real unity with the other people who were participating. It forced us to shed all of this armor that you build up of separateness. And we were all just like, you know, when you see kids on a playground, they're not thinking about how different they are. It's sort of the last thing they're thinking about. And that's what this experience forced you to do. And and then I set off to writing it and adapting it. It was it was long and tricky, but it was fun. Wow. I mean, when I want to get into some of the themes, but first, like Dispatches from Elsewhere is the first series you've created. Yeah. Like you said, you also wrote, you directed, you starred in it. So what was that learning curve for you like when you're wearing all those hats? And did you get advice from anyone? You know those scenes in Spider-Man movies where 
Spider-Man is like holding a bus with one arm and his girlfriend with the other arm and and like fighting the bad guy with his feet. And there is this risk that Spider-Man, like, you know, he's not going to let him drop any of the things. Instead, he'll let himself get ripped apart. That's a little that's a little bit what it felt like doing all those jobs. I took on a lot and probably uh, now that I know what that is like, I would probably do it different. But it was actually really important for me to find out. I've been on this big quest of finding things out. When How I Met Your Mother ended, you know, first thing I did was end of the tour because I was really, I really wanted to find out. Most people don't find out. You just get to sit resentfully at dinner parties with that idea. And I thought like, let's start finding stuff out. Well, in the show, for those that don't know, you play Peter, a music streaming service employee who questions the sort of mundane life he's been leading, and he gets drawn into this alternate reality thing. So the series began airing in February before everyone was isolating at home, but it wrapped as people were sort of settled into this new way of life. And like you said, it it highlights some of the... like the things that we're thinking about right now, like connection, confronting what we're doing with our lives, how we're more alike than different. I mean, did you feel like you had that preparation already because when you wrote it, you were going through all that? And what is it like to see the way the themes are sort of have extra resonance right now? Yeah, it's really interesting how it all played out. You know, I had been feeling that way for a while. I don't think social media did what everyone hoped that it would do. That's my personal opinion. You know, there's a lot of great things about it, about being able to galvanize movements and give voice to people who don't have voices. I wouldn't say that that's the majority of what it's used for. Also, one of the things the series explores, which I don't think that our separateness helped with, is that I know there have been a lot of times when I felt scared or I felt like something was wrong. And I looked around me and the image being projected by everyone else was like, look how great this avocado toast is. And I felt almost embarrassed to say, oh, well, I'm actually feeling depressed, you know? So I think part of what the show was about was breaking down the walls of appearance and being honest with each other. And so we set up four really separate characters, Sally Field, amazingly, myself, Eve Lindley, Andre Benjamin, all in four different states of existential crisis to some extent. And slowly throughout the 10 episodes of the series, we show that these four people are way more similar than they appear. And I feel to some extent that's what we're all going through right now. And that's what we're all hungry for is some sense of togetherness and, and an acknowledgement of this separation that's been created and trying to figure out how to break down those walls. Listen, it's a very grandiose thing to think that the show could have any impact on that. And I don't think that it would necessarily have any impact, but I do think that it's, um, it's a really earnest exploration of those ideas. I feel like I'm somebody that has really struggled with being sort of forced to confront some of these things because I have so much time. Like I'm someone that likes to push it away, be busy and not think about it. And that's what I've really struggled with in this time. Did it take a while for you to sort of be comfortable with 
looking at yourself? Or has it always been something that you felt was important? I reached a point in my early 30s where I was just very unhappy. I had to make a decision really like, is this what you want it to be like? Or are we going to do something about this? I'm really happy that I chose the latter because some people don't. Like some people live really unhappy for, you know, way longer than they need to and suffer quietly and all that. I I didn't want to do that. I also was really interested because I felt at some point like the stuff that I was making wasn't very challenging to me. I remember the excitement of forgetting Sarah Marshall. I'm like 25 years old and we're going to end a studio romantic comedy with a lavish Dracula puppet musical. And I had this awareness of like, oh, this could be so dumb. This could really go poorly, but I think that it's great and let's let's go for it. Same with the full frontal nudity. It, like, I really felt that there was a dramatic purpose for it and still do, you know, we could talk about that someday. But also I was aware like, oh, this could go horribly wrong. And Muppets, too, there was a high degree of difficulty because it's so beloved and the early movies are done with such love. And if I get it wrong, then it it could go really badly. And if I get it right, it could feel amazing. And those couple experiences really informed that I wasn't feeling that way about some other projects. And so I set out when I could kind of choose what I wanted to do It's one of the great luxuries of doing a show for a decade is now you can really make some choices. And you also no longer have the excuse of that I need to take a job or something like that. I don't. I mean, just to be perfectly straightforward, like it's up to me if I care about this stuff to choose stuff I care about. And I guess I started asking people who I admire why they choose things and what they do and and what do they think art is. And one of my really good friends who I really respect said, art at its best is an act of self-exploration on behalf of an audience. And I sat with that for a long time and I really think it's a great working definition. I mean, there are a million definitions, but that one really resonated with me. So Dispatches from Elsewhere is me saying, okay, I'm going to explore this feeling on all of our behalf and maybe some of you will feel the same way. This episode is brought to you by Succession on HBO. The second season of Succession tracks the lives of the Roy family as they contemplate their future once their aging father begins to step back from the media and entertainment conglomerate they control. IndieWire hailed the second season of Succession as the best show on TV. Emmy eligible for outstanding drama series and all other categories. Well, I want to talk about the finale because... I'm so glad you didn't say I want to talk about Tiger King. I was about... (laughs) I mean, I'm ready to. I'm ready to, but... (laughs) We'll talk about it later, Jason. In the finale, you bring yourself into the series world. Like, it becomes very meta. So tell me, how did you decide on, like, the Jason you were going to put into the series? Like, how honest the portrayal it would be? 
there were two converging thought processes that led me there. I'll do the less interesting one first. Um, <laughs> the whole show is structured where you're moving out towards reality. So at first they're chasing down this fictional girl. And then about halfway through the season, we pull away the fictional girl and force them to confront the real creator of the game that they're playing and ask the question, what happens when we take away the fantasy for you and you're left with reality? Are you still going to find meaning for the characters? So Russian doll style, that's what the finale is too. What if now we pull away these fictional characters and we leave you with the real creator and what are you going to do with that? It's like a challenging work of structure. You know, it's meant to make the audience ask themselves some questions. That was the writerly answer. The more emotional answer was the whole show is about this idea of what if we stop hiding behind metaphors and show our real selves to each other? Can we believe that it'll be met with acceptance and someone saying, hey, I also feel this way? Community, you know? Well, I'm writing the show and I thought, oh, that's such a really nice idea. But do you actually believe it, Jason? Or is this like BS? And if the answer is you actually believe it, then prove it. And that led me to the finale of this sort of ultimate conclusion to that idea of, hey, if we just show ourselves to one another, warts and all, that maybe that's a good place to start. And you know what? Here. I'll start with me. So that was the idea behind it. It would be grandiose to think that it has some giant impact, but it was a gesture that I felt was important. With the 10 episodes sort of behind you, what would you say you learned about who you are at this stage in your life? I would say that like the best parts of me are really satisfied with the idea of making stuff that I care about, that people care about, and letting it just exist and being comfortable that that's um, this really special, tiny superpower that I may have, that I can write stuff that may be meaningful to somebody, whether it's a comedy, you know, like people still ask me when I'm doing the full-length Dracula puppet musical, you know, and and... For dispatches from elsewhere, there are people who still write and say, hey, thank you. I really needed that during this time of isolation. And like, I take a lot of pride in that. Maybe I have a little baby purpose. You know, that's the best parts of me. The worst parts of me I learned are like, I am obsessed with getting it right. I am so much like Fredwin in that way, the Andre Benjamin character, where like, Man, I take those reins back so fast once I've handed them over if I see somebody like doing it in a way that I don't like. And so that was a really interesting thing for me to manage also is finding out the parts of myself where I need to release my grip a little bit because I, I can drive myself crazy. It's hard. It's su super hard. What would you say motivates you as a writer? And is it any different than what motivates you as an actor? Uh, yeah, the writing is much more instinctive for me. I love, love, love acting, but acting, um, you know, it, it's interesting. I would love it if I was just offered interesting parts constantly that I could 
just say yes and live that life. That just has never been how it's gone for me. The end of the tours are few and far between. Most of the time I have to write something for myself. So they're really related. But for writing, it's really interesting because acting I find so relaxing. I just love it. I know how to do it. I feel like I'm good at it. I know like how to prep. And then somebody says action and it's time to start acting. And then somebody says cut. You know, writing is this constant battle against yourself and procrastination and self-loathing and and a script. Or I, I write books too. Like books are even longer, but a script is long. It's like three months of this battle of some days you like it, some days you don't. My relationship with writing is... I don't think it's very hard to think of ideas. I have a million ideas and I try as hard as I can not to write them. And then one of the ideas or two of the ideas will begin to nag me and not leave me alone. And I'll wake up thinking about them and I'll be sitting there and like ideas on the ideas will start popping up. And then I have this thought like, God God damn it. I'm going to have to write this effing thing. <laughs> and then you're off to the races. And, and you know, I'm sort of joking, but I'm largely not. Like, I do enjoy it. I enjoy thinking of the idea. I enjoy writing the end. But the middle is a lot. It's, it's a lot of hard work. This all sounds really too familiar. I, I totally feel you. <laughs> yeah. Well, your road to exploring writing seriously began on Freaks and Geeks, right? Yeah, I had been... I had been writing a little bit before that for fun, and I do find it therapeutic sometimes. But it really did come down to this advice that Judd Apatow gave me, which which is that the only way you're going to play the parts you want is to write them yourself. And that has stuck with me and, and proved largely to be true. Again, like I find nothing more relaxing than being an actor for hire and finding a part that I love. I still choose stuff I really care about and stuff that I is going to be challenging for me, but it, it, is, it is a huge luxury to have somebody else do the grunt work around it. I know the cycle of being an actor and I've seen it around me and I know the ups and downs. And I know that there are several times over these 20 years when it could have been the end for me. But I always knew in the back of my mind that if I could write something good enough, that I could keep acting. I think that's been a big part of my relationship to writing also is like writing is is my life preserver sometimes in this crazy business, you know? Because on Freaks and Geeks, it was that you had to write a song. You're like a musical guy, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm okay with music. I think as opposed to me actually being good at all these things, I have a quality of not being easily embarrassed. And so I'm willing to sit through the period where you're bad at something until you're pretty good at it. Someone who's actually good at music is way better at music than I am. Do you know what I mean? I'm pretty good at it and I'm funny and so I can write a funny song. Judd's pretty, at least at the time, I, you know, I haven't worked with him in a while, but he was pretty matter of fact about like, hey, I need a song on Monday. You're going to play guitar. I'm like, I don't play guitar, Judd. You'll figure it out. It was actually a great mentorship. I don't know if it was like Mr. Miyagi style, but that's how it ended up working. You know, I can play guitar now. (laughs) (laughs) You've 
mentioned in this conversation how I met your mother, um, which ran for what, nine seasons? Nine seasons, yeah. Could you imagine ever committing to something like that again? And how would you describe what that life is like? Like not to diminish it, but it's obviously a blessing, but the grind of like doing that many episodes and like, does it sort of become like paint by numbers at a certain point? Yeah, I mean, it's a really complicated question because there's two versions of the answer. One is me when I was doing it and one is me seven years later. At the time, I felt like, oh man, I have this parallel thing going on with the cool kids where I can make these movies and I wish I could be doing that all the time. And I look back now and think there's a little part of me that missed that missed it, that missed the, first of all, the extreme gratitude one should have when their life totally changes. And it was fun. It was an amazing group of people. It wasn't a grind. Honestly, it was very easy. And at the time when you're in your 20s to early 30s, I actually didn't want easy. I wanted to be pushing a little bit harder. And so I think that if I had frustration, it was it was that a little bit like I don't feel challenged. Now I just turned 40. Now at 40, I look back and think like, oh, man, you, you were a, living the life of Riley during that period. And so much time, again, resentful at dinner parties, thinking, oh, if I was only free to do this other stuff. I don't know. I, I, I wish older me could could do that experience again. I don't want to do it now, but I wish I had appreciated it more at the time. That's fair. Well, before we wind down, because you brought up Tiger King, now I just want to know what you've been watching in quarantine. I've just been watching all of the movies that I lied and said that I loved that I had never seen. <laughs> you know, when people are like, oh, no, I'm not even going to cite specific ones. <laughs> Now you have to list them. You have to give me some titles. Give me one or two, Jason. Okay, well, like, for example, I love Terrence Malick, but I had never seen Days of Heaven. I just, like, skipped it. And But whenever someone would bring up Days of Heaven, I'd be like, oh, it is so beautiful. God, just the beauty of Days of Heaven. Every time I watch it, I get emotional. So finally I watched it. It is very, very beautiful indeed. Um, and then last night, I watched The Great Beauty, which was a reference when we were making dispatches actually quite a bit, and I had never watched it. God, is it beautiful. If you haven't seen The Great Beauty, it is stunning. I have not, so I'll add it to the list. Yeah, it's all movies like that. Movies that you say you've seen, but no, you haven't really. You know enough to fib is the thing. You know what else I watched, which I never had to lie about because it, it, it hadn't come up, but um, man, I found it so moving, was Paris, Texas. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's just gorgeous and it evolves at a pace that I don't know if we could handle today, which was really interesting to me, you know, given our talk about attention spans and the pandemic. I sat and I watched Paris, Texas, and it was just very quiet. I watched this thing unfold and build to this last 20 minutes that was so very, very moving. And I thought to myself, don't forget what this pace just did to you. This slow reminder of like the life poetic, of it doesn't all have to be, am I interested in the first 10 minutes? Because if I'm not, I'm going to stop streaming this thing. Well, our final question comes from our previous guest, 
Jim Parsons. Oh, cool. He's the nicest guy in the world, by the way. He really is. Here's what he wanted to ask you. Jason, assuming that you... Well, I don't know if he still auditions anymore, but did he ever... Did he used to, or maybe still does, did have a feeling after going to an audition like, I think I got that? I've gone both ways on this personally in that I've walked out of rooms with that weird sensation of knowing I got it, and then I did. But I've also plenty of times gone home and been like, that was awful. I mean, I really feel embarrassed. And then a call comes in that you got it, and you're like, I don't understand the world at all. So I, w- I guess I want to know is, is that something he experiences or did experience in his time? Was a, kind of a sixth sense about auditions. Sometimes the sixth sense was right and sometimes it was just shit. That's a great question. Um, the only time I ever felt like, oh, I just got that was Freaks and Geeks. But I had the arrogance and naivety of youth. It was one of my very early auditions, and I was like 18 years old. It may have just been a coincidence that I got it, because I think I felt that way about everything. I think everything I was doing, I was like, I nailed that. (laughs) I definitely nailed that. (laughs) Now I'm asking you to return the favor and ask a question to our next guest, and that is Matthew McFadian, who plays Tom on Succession. My question for Matthew is, have you ever worked with somebody who gave you a piece of advice or ammunition for your career that you still think about today? And what was that piece of advice? I love that. Can I ask you if you've had that experience? Yeah, well, that thing that, um, that, that, thing that my friend said to me about the working definition of art has definitely inspired me in all of my choices these days. Is it worth doing if you are not going to find something about yourself out in the process? You only get to make so many things. You know, that's another thing that's come with age. You know, in your 20s, it just feels like it's going to be endless. Um, And now as I'm getting older, I'm like, oh, each one, especially when you write them, takes a long time and you're only going to get so many of them. Why? What, What is worth me devoting two or three years of my life to? I don't know. It's a really good guiding kind of compass. Well, I think... Our listeners, as well as myself, will be thinking about that after today's conversation. So thank you for putting us on that path. This was a great conversation, Jason. Thank you so much. I loved it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. That's it for the 24th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe, for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back next week. We're talking to Matthew McFadden. There were maybe, I don't know, 35, 40 extras in the room playing corporate execs in Waystar. And I, you know, I had a little bit, I didn't say much, but I remember my heart was banging away just thinking, oh my God, this is, a, the of actually having to make a speech in front of all these sort of corporate jocks. It's just terrifying. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one 
and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next week.